was trying to explain what kind of movie we were making, you know, and, and, and I said, you know, it's, it's, it's got to, yeah, I was being really pretentious, I go, it's got to be like, you know, like Hal Ashby, and uh, her ears perked up, and she went, Hal Ashby, you said, and uh, she said, would you like to host a Hal Ashby evening, and, uh, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I said, sure, and then uh, she said, it's the landlord, and I was like, oh, uh, I've never seen that one, <laughs> which is a really good thing, because I always hate it when you go see a, 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 a movie, and someone introduces you, and then they tell you the whole goddamn movie. Uh, do you know what I mean? Some pretentious film jackass comes out and goes, you know, and you go, fuck you, I'm here, I don't want to hear your shitty version of what I'm about to see. So, fortunately for you, I've never seen The Landlord, so I won't ruin it. Bobcat Goldthwait introducing or is trying to introduce the landlords at the Northwest Film Forum well over a decade ago. Today on this podcast we're celebrating 50 years of this Hal Ashby film and we also struggle to introduce exactly what this film is and we've seen the damn thing. So stick with us on this episode of Projecting Film as we work our way through something I wish I had discovered far sooner than its 50th year. It's just that I get the feeling that we're all, I mean, uh, everybody, you know, black, white, yellow, Democrat, communist, Republicans, old people, young people, whatever. Sure, it's Elvis. Only the finest thing in my shop, girl. Michael, which one of y'all is next? Oh, honey, I may close this place with this child here. We're all like a bunch of ants. See? See, the strongest drive we have as a true life force is to gain territory. Gosh, you gorgeous. Hmm, where do you live, baby? I've never done anything. I mean, any, any, anything quite like this before. It's like I've always wanted to do because everybody wants his own home, you know? And I've never had a place of my own. Last night I had a dream that the world was changing my leaps and bounds. Started up in the bigger cities and it spread to the smaller towns. The people began to smile at people that never even seen. And when Jeremiah woke me up, I was ready to live that dream. It's a brand new day. So, uh, like Hart Crane, the poet, who's also a Cancerian. See, I'm a Cancerian. And home is very important, but we never seem to make it. So, uh,. Money's never been the problem. So, shit, I bought this house. Actually, it's a, it's a tenement house. It's in this old ghetto area. We've got uh, one of the Bridges brothers, uh, not um, the famous uh, one. Pair, the, the handsome one. Who knew? That's, that, that's been the greatest discovery for me when I load this up. I was like, who is this beautiful man? Oh, Bo Bridges? He looked like that at one point? See, that, that was... I remember seeing, was it the, uh, 
Baker Boys? Was that the movie they did together? Fabulous. Fabulous yeah. Baker Boys. Yeah. Okay. And so, and, and feeling bad for Bo at one point in time and being like, God damn it. What would it be like to look like Bo and have that as your brother? And then you realize, no, no, Bo had it. He was there. Fuck him. Don't feel bad for him anymore. Back Remember, in 19th. He was right there with him, neck and neck. But yeah. he just, no, he, he, that, he made personal choices because he had it. You know what? Back in 1970, at least. I'm going to defend Bo. If I look like that in 1970 and I uh, came from like you know, uh, a dynasty, like family, famous Hollywood actor <laughs> starring in movies, you know what? I'm going to put on some weight. I'm retired. I'm good. I'm one of the Bridges brothers. I don't need to stay in fighting shape. What for? Are, are you kidding me? I, I look like Bo Bridges right now, so I, I can't really argue with that, but... I never had the potential that he had. I'll have to take some screenshots and some Instagram filters and we'll try to try to make you look like the 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 opening shots of the landlord with that weird sort of interview style and <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah, let's let's get right into that. The the one distracting thing about this film. Um the, the, I love Hal Ashby. I really do. He's one of my favorite hippie directors. He's, you know, my heart's right there with the guy. But there's certain films from this time period, and even though this was 1970, it definitely has a 1960s aesthetic to it. Um, the editing of the film, that like quick cut that they were just getting into at that time, it's so jarring. And especially in the first couple minutes of the movie, um, that it's distracting for me. Um, so there's several things that'll pull me out of this one, but there's, I ended up... <laughs> took three times trying to get through this to get to that point. But once I gave into the movie, I actually enjoyed it. Um, Don't get you. Just from a, just from a style point of view. And, I loved and that's, it. I loved it. Uh, like as soon as I was, I was in, I, I like, I got this guy. So he, he's playing and, this. And this is, this is, this is from the guy who hated, hated Harold and Maude because of the weird little shit. Well, I didn't know that there was uh, this masterpiece just lying around. Like, I don't know why people aren't talking about that. Why was this out of circulation for almost three decades? So you needed the um, comedic meditation on privilege and white guilt. I I thought it was great. I <laughs> I loved it because <laughs> because unlike other you know what we would get now with white guilt movies, where like you know Maggie Gyllenhaal would. I don't know, worry about her kid in school and she would meet right. a, a black teacher and they'd have coffee I, I, together. Michelle this is Fiber. fun. This is great. And he, he enjoys it. He enjoys his white guilt. Like he, <laughs> he kicks his feet up at times. <laughs> it's like, it's great to be white. Quite literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I thought the editing style, you know, played into that, that he's just sort of, he's only like half in it. Like, you know, he, this is him dabbling in this world, like on a whim, like I'm gonna buy up this place, and you know this is a good business proposition. I, I thought it was a lark. It felt like a lark of a movie up to that point. Well, no, you're you're absolutely right. It did feel like a lark. It felt um, that style of cutting, and at the time, it was kind of the way these sorts of films were made. But it feels very public accessy um, because the way that it would jump, it doesn't have a. It, it just you know you have the Bo Bridges character cutting over to the. Um, I think it was Lou Gossett's character when it was cutting over, if I remember correctly. And it's cutting back and forth between these two characters, but the sound sound is completely different. The ambient noise between the two of them, there's no like attempt to bridge those noises. So it's very jarring between the two. It's like this um, podcast. <laughs> when yeah, I'm oh, making it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I just studied the masters of the form. <laughs> so, so, so this is you going after your Hal Ashby school of editing. Oh man. With that in mind, think what I can do with this episode. I can be as lazy as I want to be. I can just <laughs> mid sentence, just jam the clips together. <laughs> Great. So, okay. Um, then I, I guess the thing is, though, this is sold as a comedy. It's a two-hour comedy. Um, and one of the things that I was struck by was when I went to kind of do my minimal amounts of research that I do, which is basically going to, on to IMDb to make sure I have the cast names right and maybe a producer, director, writer kind of thing. Um, the one thing that struck me was that there was this huge banner ad for Neighbors 2. And whatever thoughts I may have had about this particular film were immediately erased by where comedy was in 1970 and where it is now. Yeah, you you made fun of the runtime a little bit, but I was like, you know, Funny People is damn near two and a half hours long, and I think 40-Year-Old Virgin goes over. Um, Yeah, it's got a lot on its mind, and uh, this type of comedy now would have to have some sort of teachable moment there'd be some sort of there they, they would shift gears and be like you know we're not going to be funny for a 10 minute stretch they shift gears a little bit here i mean this movie definitely gets heavy at times it gets heavy but i, I never feel like we're now going to have the one point in the film where this kind of goofball learns I, I feel it's a much more gradual process in this and it's natural because he it goes back and forth like you know, he develops the relationships uh, much differently than cash only with these people. Well, um, uh, his character arc is that he learns that he can fall in love with a black woman because he had a one night stand with another one. I don't, that's not what I read into that. I thought, I thought it was more about like, to me, the film was about, you know, you think you can appropriate this culture, just the fun aspects of it. Mm. but you're going to, you're actually going to leave like quite like there's a whole sequence where um, it's revealed that he had a one night stand when the pregnancy comes about with one of the tenants and then her boyfriend, I'm assuming boyfriend, um, mm -hmm. you know, is told, Hey, it's not yours. Uh, it's the, the beautiful blonde headed white guy that one of the fabulous Baker boys, he did this and he's <laughs> like that damn Baker boy. I'll go get him. And, it, it does a strange sequence where it like goes through like everything that like could would happen. And then it doubles back. Like it, I, I right. loved it because as I said earlier, the editing at first is just setting up just how sort of fanciful this guy is. Cause he clearly is the black sheep of his family or he wants to be the black sheep in the sense that he's, he's prodding the bear of his sort right. of rich elite parents saying, I'm going to move into this black neighborhood uh, Park Slope, which God knows what that property is worth now. Um, good for you, fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> good call. Well, he, he, well, his initial plan was just to turn it into a giant townhouse for himself because he was 29 and still lived at home. Yeah, I, I love hearing his... Uh, it was like watching HGTV where he's telling these people who can't really pay their rent, I'm going to knock out that wall and that's going to be great. <laughs> like I think I'll put in like a... I don't know, skateboard ramp, a half pipe right there, right where, you know, your bedroom is and your closet. And like, he's just such an asshole that I love. I ate up this film. I, I was like, you know, this might be the best film in the seventies. Why is, where has this been all my life? I, I love this character. <laughs> <laughs> just, 
first there was something about his character that I felt like I don't know if there was a kindred spirit there for some reason I just kept connecting to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in um the talented Mr. Ripley and I thought that mm-hmm. that was like the comedic version of that guy yeah yeah I could see that because he's he's well he wants you to think that he's kind of oblivious but you also get the hint, like I'm thinking with the Ripley character, it's a little more overt that he occasionally will drop the mask of we're all having a good time here just to sort of needle, in that case, uh, Tom, and be like, you know, I know him better than you. I don't think the way Bridges plays it, he ever drops that mask, but clearly he's not dumb. He knows right. what he's saying and what he's doing is going to have an effect on people and it's hurtful. And that's why I love that sequence where the shit hits the fan where it's like you're going through his process of like, okay, because of me, here's what's going to happen to all of them, to all these little relationships. And for me, this is just a joke. And I really do want to leave this situation. I just, you know, I'm kind of, it's not funny. It's a drag now. I want to leave. I don't know. I don't, I don't think the film ever really comes down too hard on him. And that's what I like the most about it. I don't think that the film ever says he's, he's a bad person for what he's done. Well, I think that like the, I mean, I think that's speaking to Hal Ashby's particular politics though. Um, It would have been, it would have portrayed that because he does have this idea of this is a really different time. You know, this is 1970. So when they're filming this, it's 1969. Um, You're, this is, you know, 40 year old film at this point. So I think the, while we still have racial issues in this country at that point, you're just a few years past the point where segregation was an issue. So there's that kind of thing is still very, very present at that point. You know, the black Panther party, all these things that were very necessary at that time and might still be necessary now, but um, in a different way. And so I, I think that how Ashby, if he would have come down too hard on this character and the idea of that may have turned off people to some degree. Um, and f- his style has never been like that. If you look at something like, what was the Peter Sellers one that he did? It was being there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it- it's a similar thing there where all of his films have sort of something to say. And most of them, they seem to deal with people of privilege. And I don't know if he, he was raised that way or not, but there's a sort of like thumbing the nose half-heartedly towards that because i think there's a self-awareness that he has that he's living a very privileged life as well so he can't completely um say fuck you to it because he would be hypocritical in that way because he knows he has been the one that's taken advantage of sort of you know this societal norm that they lived in at that time does that make sense at all yeah i i I was wondering like as you're saying that this couldn't be made now right I mean, it no, wouldn't be God, a fun oh, movie no, at no, all, even no, if you took no, the same no. premise. Like, I think people would be fine with taking someone down that's a part of this. Well, it would be like... Uh, <laughs> this movie would be made with Adam Sandler now, and it would be the most base common, and it would actually be racially offensive if they tried to make this movie now, probably. I mean, it's probably that. I don't know if you're writing a script that's you know been bought by Netflix. I assume it'll be this December. <laughs> they'll filmed it. They'll shot it with Rob Schneider or somebody. No, you're... No, you're right. This, if you think of the, if you read the description of this film, it absolutely comes across as Sandler-esque, like this sort of premise behind this. It seems like that, but that's the difference between the writing and the directing here. It's actually handled by somebody that really cares about the, what people take away from the film. And with a lot of modern comedies, I don't think people really think about that. Um, 
And I don't know if that's because people were more high-minded or filmmakers were more high-minded in the way that they viewed the audience, or maybe the way that we were reading Pauline Kael back in the 70s. So we would look at something like this, and there was actually high-minded criticism. And now there's people like you and me that count as film critics. So what the fuck is going on? Boy, it's just time for the world just to shut it down. <laughs> actually, I had a, had a very dark thought earlier today at work <laughs> where I was like, I don't know. I just, you know, walked around a corner and it suddenly hit me. It's like, I understand why people kill themselves. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it wasn't anything particularly bad. No one had yelled at me. I wasn't pretty upset. I was just tired. And I was just like, you know, it'd be nice to just sleep. <laughs> <laughs> For an attorney. <laughs> Yeah, I had a lot on my mind. I got to record tonight. I got to gather myself about the landlord and, you know, it's just, it's just time to take a break. Um, but, uh, getting <laughs> less dark. Uh, I do, I do love this film. What, what do you make of, cause it usually bothers me. Like it's so clearly from, uh, Bridges character of Elgar when it does, um, sort of preview his tenets, like in particular that one sequence where she reveals her pregnancy, you know, he will have access to that situation later. He's going to be, it's going to be the culmination, like, you know, threatening to kill him. But what did you make of when we actually cut into not his sort of viewpoint of that building and that neighborhood and got to see, because they act much differently than by themselves than they do around him as far as like putting on putting on a certain character and putting on airs with him because that's like there's some sort of expectation of what he wants from them right and i think that that's um again this is coming from hal ashby's point of view so is that his like him painting himself into that where he's saying is this what it's like when you know when he when we're not around is just by is this like the idea of the documentarian when you can't really actually capture anything because just by being filmed you're affecting reality and so is there a different world here that i will never know and i I assume that's what he's doing what he's trying to paint that picture of and in that sense he's i assume taking out the stance that the world would actually be a lot better if we weren't there not in a segregation stance but if we weren't coming from this point of view of you know we're the interloper where we're just coming there to you know because there's cheap property and we can build it up and gentrification yay um, you know, let's go Brooklyn Heights or whatever, you know, neighborhood you're going to turn over. And so, yeah, I, I, I assume that's what he was thinking about in that moment, but to actually know that he, he never will. Do you think that people would have any issue with the gentrification plot here or were they like, to me, that just seems like an accepted part of life now where it's like, Oh, you got it in when the getting was good. Like there's a pat on the back. Like, you know, I, I don't know if people would even entertain the notion of doing a whole movie about that. Um, I, I hope they would. I, I, you know, you're, you're probably right that the idea of that um, might be gone at some point, but it would probably have to, you would have to reverse it now at this point where now we've had this like reverse urban flight where all the suburban kids have started moving into these neighborhoods in the city. And so it's, they, it's kind of what they're talking about here as well, but now it's actually come to fruition because every area, every city has like a little down 
downtown that's thriving again and is moving around and has like a couple of hip restaurants and maybe they have a streetcar or they have a river walk or whatever that is. And there are actual neighborhoods that were there before that have been destroyed and these people can't afford that rent anymore. So they're having to move out to this really plain neighborhoods in the suburbs. And maybe that's where, you know, culture will find itself again, because the idea of what we end up co-opting and creating culture on and putting our imprint on is we gentrify it. We make it white. We make it safe. Um, we make it, you know, a place that you can walk around with your strollers and it'll be okay. Um, I, I think that there, there's something that happens when you take CBGBs and you turn it into a, I don't know, a real estate office. There's something that's lost there. And, I, and I'm not one of those people that believes in that, the keep whatever, you know, keep Portland or keep Austin shitty kind of, attitude I, I think you know that's ridiculous yeah th- those people are dicks and they're assholes but as far as where culture thrives it usually generally speaking it comes from a place um where there's some degree of oppression um music gets better when we have really bad presidents um you know art gets better when there's those types of things because people are speaking out against that and so when you take your downtown neighborhoods where the good galleries are and the good you know food is and you make them really posh and really expensive the hungry nature of art goes away and so that's what's so great about this film though um it it was the few times that i tried to put this on before um the kind of groovy soundtrack kept putting me to sleep in the middle of the afternoon um, because i have a five-month-old and i'm sleep deprived pretty much all the time but once i actually sat down and started accepting this film on its own merits it's phenomenal and i should have known that going in i think it's one of the uh the best that uh, I've discovered for this podcast and really had no expectation wow. for. So how did, and, and I assume you're, you're a little bit like me and that there's some things that are hard for me to get over um, when I watch a film and it's a, I mean, I'll be perfectly forthright here. This film um, isn't available on DVD, isn't available on Blu-ray. So I had to find an online copy of this. That was a VHS rip Same here. that was on YouTube. So I, it, I usually, when I'm watching something that was initial, when it's out of proper aspect ratio, when it's a denigrated you know, copy of it, it's, these are all things that are buy-ins for me. They're t- a little bit difficult for me to get past. Um, yeah, this is worth that. And I can honestly say watching a bad copy of this, um, watching the wrong aspect ratio of this, um, you know, denigrated copies of it. This is kind of like if you used to go to Comic-Cons back when they actually talked about real movies and you would get, you know, that fourth generation copy of, you know, Kubrick's first movie that he's been trying to bury, uh, that kind of thing. It's uh, you would watch it and you would accept the, the quality of it because there was something there. And this is one of those films that transcends that. And that's something you don't see now because digital video and, uh, you know, all these other tools have made it so easy to have that. the sort of aesthetic but without the actual heart of the film and this only was the heart that was coming through and i would love absolutely love to see a proper version of this film if not projected just you know a nice criterion where are you at on this one i don't know where criterion is on this um i I don't know those guys slack you look you look up online and everybody loves this movie this is not our take on this is not uncommon it's and it did well at the time too. Apparently, it's a pretty successful movie. So I don't. How has this fallen through the cracks? Yeah, but uh, from what I read, it wasn't as edgy as they expected it would be at the time. They said that things were changing so fast then that they were a little bit behind mm-hmm. the curve. But now, 
it just looks like they were prescient. Totally. Like they got it right. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know what they got wrong initially, but yeah. And who, was it Norman Jewison that produced this film also? I was going to direct it. Yeah. How much more pedigree could this fucking thing have? But I think it would have, I don't know if I would have. Oh, he, I don't think to he could have done it in the same way. No, no. I think it would have been very preachy. It would have been yes. what I expected to be released now if someone made a version of it. Other than your Adam Sandler um, version. No, he, I, could you imagine the guy that made The Hurricane doing a comedy? Mm, not effectively. Not on purpose. <laughs> um, I, I, can, I, I can't really think of many directors that can sort of go between those two worlds very easily. Um, can you? I mean, there, there's a few offhand, but I... Like someone like Kubrick comes to mind, but he always, all of his films are funny throughout. I think he's very underrated with how funny his movies are. Um, as far as doing like a straightforward comedy and other things that are sort of considered real dramas, or maybe Rob Reiner, oddly enough, comes to mind offhand. Hmm. I think he's a really underappreciated director. He is. Yeah. I went on a, uh, it was weird when I was in high school and worked at a video store. I uh, was just bringing home random movies that I had not seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like I brought home like Princess Bride, Misery, and the American President. And it was not doing it on purpose. And then I realized it's like, <laughs> these are all directed by fucking Rob Reiner. Like I'm having my own little Rob Reiner fest and didn't even realize it. So, okay, just a, as a complete side note there with you know somebody like Hal Ashby or even uh, Norman Jewison, um, you can sort of see their imprint on the movies with Rob Reiner. It's a lot. Lot harder to see. Um, I think there's thematic things that he might be attracted to, but he doesn't have that same sort of specific style. Do you think that's to his credit, or is that to a disservice about his quality as director? It's a disservice to talking about him, to uh, maybe him getting the credit he deserves. Um, I think someone who does that, maybe in a more interesting way, as far as for podcast purposes, is uh, like Soderbergh. I don't really know if he has a particular style. Like, plus he just has produced so much stuff. Um, he seems to get more respect, uh, being a bit more of a chameleon, uh, than Rob Reiner did. And maybe it's just because he's, even when he's switching up styles, he's far more stylish than Reiner. I, I don't know. Good point. The landlord at the very least, um, the aesthetic choices that were made were in service of the story. And it has to mean something. Otherwise, it just looks like a music video. And, you know, Fight Club, Fincher, he, he made music videos. But even then, um, he's one of those guys that gets called out for being overly cold and not emotional. But I think that the choices that he makes for the visual are definitely in service of the story, always. Great. Great film. Man. Loved it. I was I was really coming to this conversation because you had texted me saying, I haven't finished The Landlord yet, or I haven't been able to make it through it. And I'm like, what the fuck has happened here? Why? Am- <laughs> no, I, I, I yeah, I, that, that's just being sleep deprived and having a five month old, that kind of thing. That's all. So I, I don't have a whole lot of free time. And when I do, I need to be more awake when I'm watching good film. And so the problem with us doing the show is I squeeze in too many movies in a week. I end up watching a lot more than I probably should. And something like the landlord needs to, you know, that it's the kind of movie that I wish that I was making it a, an event that I was taking my wife on a date to see that, that I was going out 
to the local art house and afterwards we were sitting down and, you know, having a cup of coffee afterwards and talking about the movie for a little while and seeing that movie projected with an audience. That would be wonderful. But, you know, I'm still really happy that I got to see this one. So, um, yeah, if you can't find a copy of this online through whatever methods, uh, go down to your local used bookstore. They might have a VHS copy of it somewhere. Or give me money. I'll take it. We'll work <laughs> something out. <laughs> Is it not on YouTube anymore? Did it get pulled? I don't know. I, I don't, I so rarely even look at YouTube. Like, uh, if I'm really, I mean, usually a torrent site will, will have, you know, anything, anything you need. I mean, by God, it's got the landlord VHS rip. So uh, I, I, and the thing is something like this, I want to pay for it. I want, I wish that, you know, there would have been that dollar 99 rental on YouTube or, um, you know, Vimeo or anything that I could have gone to Amazon, whatever. I, I wish that I could support this movie on some level, but this is unfortunately the only support that I can give it by saying, please release this movie so I can repay for it. Cause I would be really happy to buy this movie after seeing it. Landlord's great. God's great. Um, oh, I think so that's it. Good. Okay. I love the, the poster for the landlord. I didn't touch on that. It's, the, it's got him. It, it, okay. So is it, it, am I, is it, is the, 11 year old version of me coming out. Is, is that supposed to be boobs? Those are titties. Going on Those are titties. <laughs> Them be titties. Okay. And Bo Bridges is going to get his. I, I loved it. <laughs> Love it. Love everything about this movie. <laughs> Actually, I just had to toss that back out there so we'd have post-music bumper material. <laughs> Chris. You know, out of everything in there, I can't believe that I yeah, forgot to mention the most obvious thing, the poster with titties on it. <laughs> and so, you know, I like that the, it looks like foreplay. Like he's just going to press on one and presumably go on to the next. I don't know. You never know with Bo what he's going to do. <laughs> So this conversation was previously a segment on our previous podcast, War Machine versus War Horse. And uh, I guess if you are as enthusiastic about our enthusiasm for The Landlord, you may have checked to see if you can purchase this particular film. And as of the recording back in 2016, you couldn't. You couldn't tell from our complaining endlessly. But as of one year ago, May 2019... Kino Lorber put out a Blu-ray edition of The Landlord that, as of this recording, in May 2020, is a mere $15. So, I guess it's time for Chris and myself to put our money where our 2016 mouths were and uh, add that to our collection. And uh, I hope you do as well. After listening to this conversation, hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope you enjoyed The Landlord. <laughs>